Once again, take note of the, the questions are on the screen, and we're going to be in Ezra, Ezra chapter 7. I think I said chapter 6 earlier, but we are in Ezra chapter 7 um, this morning. And so just a, a real quick, a real quick uh, sum up, summary of 1 through 6. Uh, essentially, chapters 1 through 6 is Ezra's call to the people of his present day to look back to God's faithfulness, to look back to God's providence and his care and his kindness toward his people as he called that first group out of exile and exile and from captivity back into the land. And for that people to have the expectation that as they are facing their present trials, as they are repenting of their present sins, they will trust that God in his faithfulness and his character will do the exact same thing. That's what he is doing in chapters 1 through 6. How God's protected, he provided for his people in the, the rebuilding of the temple. So this morning, chapter 7, we are going to make a, a time jump from 516 B.C. to now to about 458 B.C. About a 60-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7. And also, we are introduced to the new main character of the book of Ezra, and to our no surprise, it's Ezra. We're introduced to Ezra. He comes on the scene, and his role within, within the, the people, it's an old role. It's a role that's from all the way back from the beginning. Of the, of the nation, and yet we see him leading in a beautifully glorious way. So let's look to Ezra chapter 7. Let's start reading in, in verse 1 together. Now after this, in the reign of Art, Artaxerxes in Persia, Ezra the son of Siara, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahithub, son of Amaria, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerath, son of Uzi, son of, son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And there went also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests, and the Levites, and the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the temple servants, and Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, in which, there, in which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules 
in Israel. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. History is full of very important world-changing dates and events and in places. We learned about them in school, and we're still learning about them if you're interested in history. And we could spend the rest of our time together and tomorrow and the next day talking about all the famous battles and the monuments and the cities and the, the wonders of the world and their significances to humanity and history. However, I think even more significant than dates and events and places is people. And again, history is replete with men and women that change the history of the world. From acts of courage and bravery, bravery, intelligence, hard work, perseverance, inventions, exploration, discovery, scientific pioneering, great works of writing and literature, music and art. Men and women at just the right place, at just the right time. In the church, at least in our church in particular, we, we like to hold to church history as being something special. We look back to it as being good for us to know and to, to, to learn. And next week we're going to look more into the Reformation. But men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, who they were just being faithful to the Lord at the time. To them, they were just being faithful to the, to the word of God. And yet they stood in that faithfulness against false teachers, against false teaching and, and false doctrines that was enslaving people. They stood to the, to the powers that be that controlled the church's doctrine and their corruption. And we know them now as the ones who spearheaded the reformation of the church. And that significantly changed the history of the world. Significantly. To which we're here this morning in their legacy, 500 years later. One person can change the world, as they say. And history proves that. In Ezra chapter 7, we're introduced to this new character, this, this man, Ezra. And he may, not be re, he may not be remembered by scholars, and you didn't learn him in, in fifth grade history or seventh grade history or sixth, sixth or seventh grade history, any of the histories in high school you might, or college. You might not have learned about him. He may not be known as the hundred most people who changed the world, but Ezra was truly a great man. His greatness is not defined by how he led a revolution, made a scientific breakthrough, or being a military genius, but how he truly was a man of God, and how he was used by the Lord to be a great blessing to his people and to lead his people in reformation, in reformation back to the scripture. He was the right man at the right place at the right time. It's almost as if God is sovereign. 
take out the if. Ezra was a great student. He was a great statesman. He was a, a great priest. He was a great reformer. And he was a great preacher and tier teacher. He led another group of exiles back from the land of Babylon. We read that this morning. He leads another group back. But more importantly, what does Ezra do? He leads God's people in a revival of understanding the word of God and he leads them to be obedient to the word of God. And it brings about revival and reformation amongst the people. As we go through the rest of, of the book of Ezra and even into e e Nehemiah, I think you will be refreshed by this man who is so dev fully devoted and committed to the scriptures and obedience to God we will be refreshed by that. And he had such a simple strategy, too. So simple. Study the Bible, do the Bible, teach the Bible. Nothing extraordinary. Nothing creative and lights and whiz and bang. Nothing revolutionary. And yet it's the same principles by which God's people still grow today. It's the same principles that the reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, revived within the church. Captivated by scripture, putting it into practice, proclaiming it. Do you know what our world needs? Lots of things. Do you know what the church needs? It needs lots of things. But I can tell you what those two things don't need. It doesn't need any more celebrities. God help us. Rock stars, country music artists, stars, Instagram influencers. And if you know what those are, I'm sorry. <laughs> or even more politicians. The church in the world needs more people who want and to know the Lord. More people who are in Christ that set their hearts and their minds on the scriptures like the man Ezra. We'll get to that in a minute, in a few minutes. And we're really going to hone in on verse 10. But in chapter 7, 1 through 10, serves as an introduction to the rest of the book to the rest of the book, and, and it gives us some really important information about the man Ezra, which will set up, of course, verse 10. First, we see that there is a new king. We see that there is a new king of the Persians. It's no longer Darius, but it is now Artaxerxes, right, which sets up this framework, or, or this timing, I mean, to being uh, 458 B.C., and we'll hear more from Artaxerxes uh, in, in the, next, uh, the, the rest of the chapter. Here. But we also see in verses 1 through 5 the lineage of Ezra. The, the highlights, actually, more the highlights of the lineage of Ezra. And he can trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses and the first chief priest of Israel. It's a brief gene genealogy of, 
of Ezra, but it is there because it's obviously very important. It's obviously very important that we understand that this man, Ezra, who is the high, becomes the high priest of Israel, comes from the lineage of Aaron, which where all high priests come from. Now, this line of significance of descent doesn't stand him any closer to God than to those who are born outside of that line. Israel's history of unfaithfulness, including their priests, demonstrates that very clearly. The significance of this ancestry is twofold. First, it gives uh, Ezra credence and authority to serve as the high priest before the people. But more importantly, it shows us, once again, God's faithfulness to his people. Well, how is that? Because God has once again raised up another leader for his people that will lead his people in, just a, in another exodus as God did the first time. Sounds strange, but Ezra's ancestry actually tells us more about God than it does Ezra. This is just a side point, but, but that is the same thing true for you and me. Most of us do not come from a noble or a affluent line like Ezra. And often it feels because our, our parents might have failed or, or they had broken homes or had broken families or broken marriages that we too are doomed to repeat the same failures and faults of our parents, grandparents, or forefathers. And we feel like we are, we're stuck in that same trap, that we're going to do the same things. But this line teaches us that we are not defined by someone else's past, and if we are in Christ, we are no longer defined by our own. We still face the consequences of those decisions, of sin and of our past, but it doesn't define us, because what defines us is the Lord's saving work in our lives, His grace, His mercy and his forgiveness. No matter where we come from or, or who we were, we celebrate the glory of God who delights in showing his greatness by transforming those who were weak, foolish, and broken, broken lineages. He transforms us into new creations in Christ. So Ezra is a priest Ezra is important, but verse 6 also tells us that Ezra was a scribe, which means that Ezra was a skilled teacher in the law of Moses of the Lord. Ezra was swift in the scriptures. He'd be the champion Bible drill guy. He knew his Bible. He knew how to understand the Bible and how to put things together. He could use the Bible to, to bear on the pressing questions of life and circumstances within the people. The Lord had blessed Ezra with the abilities, and he continued to practice the skills that God had given him to, to where it says in, in verse 6 that he was skilled. 
I can do many things, but I'm not skilled in a lot of them, most of them. He was skilled in the Word of God. Ezra also had some kind of position within the Parisian court where he could make requests before the king. And the king would not only hear his request, but also grant his requests. He had favor before the king. He was a statesman. He was what we would maybe call a diplomat or some kind of political appointee. Either way, he had clout. And he was a busy guy. But what do we see Ezra do with his abilities and his skills and his position with the king? How does he leverage all of this talent, all of these abilities and skills, and, and even his own lineage? And now this favor with the king, how does he leverage that? Does he leverage it to, to build his own kingdom? No. We see him actively seeking the kingdom of God through his position. Through this diplomatic political channels open to him as an official of the Persians. And it was by Ezra's request that he and another group of exiles could return to the land. That request to the king doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't come from, from thin air. It's because he studied the scriptures. He knew the Torah. He knew his Bible. He knew about Joseph. He knew how God had also raised Joseph, this Jew, this foreigner, to be a part of the court of another leading nation. And how God blessed him. And how Joseph was used by God to be a blessing to his people. He wasn't there just for Joseph. He was familiar with Daniel's service in the king in the court of the Babylonians and the Persians. He had to have known about Mordecai and Esther just a generation before, who the Lord used to save the Jews from genocide. And yet underneath all, all of, all of Ezra's God-given skills as a priest and a teacher, and underneath his position in his favor before this court with King Artaxerxes, the most powerful king in the, in the world at the time. It's the same thing that as Christians we must recognize in our own lives. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And this is the most important thing I think that Ezra recognized. That his whole life his talents, his skills, his positions was by the hand of God. And it was all by God's grace and mercy that he has given him all of these things. And if it's by the hand of God, which, by the way, denotes power and strength, it's by God's omnipotent hand that he has been raised up with such gifted talents and intellect and abilities and position. Verse 9 repeats the same thing, and I love this one, because it says, for the good hand of his God was on him. It means it, this, is, this is a mixture of God's omnipotence and his omnibenevolence. That the power of God is doing what? 
working for our good. Because God always does what is good. And he's working out from his power and from his goodness to raise up Ezra to this place, to use these gifts, these talents, these abilities, these skills to do what? To be about God's kingdom, to lead God's people out back to the land, and to lead a revival, a reformation of God's people back to the word of God. This is what he understood. If it's the Lord's work in us, and he has given us these things, and if it's by his good hand, are they really for us? Are all of these things, these gifts, these talents, these abilities, are they really for us? And this is where we get to verse 10, where we get to hear the, we get to see the heart of Ezra. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I love this verse. This week was like a love story of me falling in love with this verse. Because these are the, my, the three most favorite things for me. And I want you to see this is God's, his goodness and his power toward us is to do these same things. And they're not just for me as a pastor. And they're not just for Ezra because he was a leader or a priest. But these are things that he has given to all of us in Christ and called each of us in Christ to do to know the Bible, to do it, and to teach it. Yes, number one first, to know the Bible. Yes, Ezra, Ezra was a leader. Yes, Ezra was a priest. And he had the lineage, and he had the authority. And yes, he was a scribe. But underneath all of that and the fuel behind all of those things, the catalyst of his greatness was his firm priority in knowing the Lord and knowing that it was the hand of God that was on his life. These are the kind of people that shine brightly in history. God was raising up Ezra. He's the one that gave him the intellect, the knowledge, the lineage, the position in the kingdom, the favor with the king, to receive whatever he asked for. I mean, has there been anybody in your life that's ever even told you that? You can have whatever you want? And here's the king, the most powerful king. And he can get whatever he wanted. Ezra knows that his people needed him to lead them to bring them back to the glory of Israel and to lead them into the freedom from under this empire. Israel needed so much. There was still so much left to do. The rebuilding the temple was just part of the process. There was so much more to be done. But what did Ezra believe that was needed most from him? to know the Bible, 
to study the Scriptures. Like David, who was a, a man after God's own heart, Ezra's love for God's Word was the same. In his ways for the, from the Scripture is going after God's own heart in the same way. It says that Ezra, in verse 10, had set his heart. Set his heart. Put his heart in place to be what? Study the Word of God. What does that mean to set, to set his heart? Some, some uh, translations say the word devoted, and, and, and that's a, a good word to use, but I think it really lacks the, the passion and the joy that comes from the heart, the, the love that comes from it. A person can be devoted and committed to their job and to work hard and be the best at what they do to improve and to educate themselves. And that's all good and it's adequate. But there is a distinction there from, from setting one's heart to it because it's about love. We love our wives and our husbands and our children and yes, therefore, we are devoted to them, but even more than that, we set our hearts toward them for their good, to know them. As a husband, I want to be devoted in all of those ways, but I want to set my heart toward my wife in love. Ezra's passion, his heart was set not merely for intellectual curiosity, or just to be a good scholar of the Bible, or, or be a professor, or a professional of religion to, to lead the people to have a better life. No, Ezra had a heart for God and a mind for the truth, and that is to study the Word of God. He loved the Scriptures. He wanted to know the Scriptures and every bit of it that he could get his hands on and study and know. And this is massively important. And it's absolutely necessary before Ezra could bring Israel into a reformation or a revival. The Protestant Reformation might have begun in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg. But its seeds were sown earlier by guys like William Tyndale and, and John Wycliffe who worked on the translations of the Bible, not just from Latin to English, but from the original sources. The Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic. And they died for it. For us to get our hands on the scriptures, for them to get their hand, the, the people's hands onto the word of God. And they did this because they understood the power and the significance of the people of God having the word of God because it's what shapes us. If it's not what's shaping us, if it's not what's bearing on us, then brothers and sisters, what is? What is? Media, culture, because that's what's going to come in, and it's going to eat your lunch. It's going to eat your lunch every time. But if it's the scriptures, well, Christ the solid rock I stand. It was his heart set on the truth of the word of God that set then people like Martin Luther free from bondage to sin. 
and from his works. And this depraved worked religion. And it was a priority of the scriptures that propelled the Reformation forward. That's why we as a church believe and say sola scriptura. We sing your word alone because scripture alone is fully inspired, fully inerrant, and fully authoritative for the church. Listen to the passage from 1 Thessalonians. It says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it as, as it, accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Why are we to study? Why are we to set our hearts onto studying the word of God? Because it's what we have received and it's what we have believed because it's not the words of men, but what it really is, the word of God. So in our study, in our listening, in our meditating, and in our praying of the word of God, it is truly the word of God. And as 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, it's doing what? It's at work in you. It's shaping us. We study it because this is what it does. Why else should we study the word? 2 Timothy 3.16, we should be so familiar with this verse by now. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Not just some works, not for partial works, but for every good work, for everything that we do. God is raising us up and equipping us with the word of God for every good work. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit, joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Could you answer the question, what else should, why else should we study with anything better than those two verses? You know, on Thursday nights, the men have been meeting together for this very purpose, to study the Word of God together and to learn together how to study the Word of God. Why? Why? Because of 2 Timothy 3.16. Because it's what we believe about the word of God. Hebrews 4.12. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. We need it as men. We need the scriptures to bear on us. And we need to learn together, be discipled together, building one another up how to study the scriptures together. And to grow up in the scriptures together. So first, what to know the Bible. And second, not only does Ezra set his heart to studying the Word of God, but then he sets his heart to 
to do it. I mean, just like, no duh, right? Amazing. What is the point to learn the scriptures and study the Bible to know them better than anyone else? To hear them taught over and over and over and over again, and yet never to let them bear any weight on your life. What's the point? Well, I'll tell you the point is. Nothing. Except maybe condemnation. <laughs> except maybe for heaping condemnation on oneself. There are so many professors, doctors of scripture, scholars, even famous preachers at famous churches, brilliant men and women who will know the Bible in and out far more than you and I will probably ever get to. And yet to them, the Bible is only a book of history. It's just another textbook. Or at best, it has some moral teaching, as long as it jives with cultural tolerances. The Bible really has no bearing with any full weight of the power and the authority of sola scriptura for you to really apply it to your lives and most certainly not to apply it to others. Their gift is a waste. You see, this is exactly what Ezra knew. That when he began to study the word and understand the word of God, it began to change him as it changes us. And as he set his heart toward knowing God's word, he set his heart to doing God's word. In John 15, Jesus tells us that he, had, he has given us the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, and that he will guide us into all truth. Do you know what that means? That means that if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you to be your teacher and to be your guide, to help you not only understand the scriptures, but to apply the scriptures, specifically in the areas of holiness and obedience, to do it. Here's what Jesus says. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood rose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the other who hears and does not do them is like the man who built a house on ground without a foundation. When the stream broke it against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. We hear the word of God, we study the word of God, and we do it. 1 John 2, 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By, by this we may know that we are in him. The marks of obedience are evidences of God's grace in our life. We've been given the scriptures not just to study them as if, it's, as if it's a textbook, but to apply them and to let them bear weight on our hearts and souls because it will change us and it will shape us 
and it will move us from our sin and from darkness and into light. It's almost as, as if what we see exampled in our verses this morning, how Ezra led the people out of exile. When we study the word of God and we apply the word of God, it leads us out of the exile of the darkness of our own hearts. It leads us from captivity and into freedom. Isn't that wonderful? What a gift God has given us in his scripture. And lastly, as Ezra sets his heart toward the scriptures and to do it, but then he sets himself to teach his statutes, God's statutes and rules in Israel. Again, Ezra knew that with his skill, the blessing of having God's word and letting it have its full effect in his life, that he must do what? Teach it. He must teach it to Israel. And we'll see his teaching in the rest of, of Ezra and even in Nehemiah. It's the exact role that he takes as, as this leading teacher in the nation. He teaches God's word because it's authoritative over his people for it to rule over his people. And without faithful teachers of the word, God's people go astray. Ephesians tells us that teachers, preachers, and evangelists are gifts to the church. Now, I know the easy application here is for us to, is, is for us to, um, uh, is to say that teaching, let's just leave the teaching up to the professionals. Unfortunately, I think that's one of the causes of the churches of the, 21st and the or 20th and 21st centuries lethargy and apathy. They have been led and trusted in these professionals in so much, in so many ways, that they have been lethargic in their own discipline and studying and applying the Word of God that they no longer have discernment of the Word of God and only have just become consumers of everything. The church has its elders, and they're called and they're qualified recognized and affirmed by the church. And yes, they are the main teaching sources in the church. However, only a few can be called, will be called uh, elders. And yet every man within this church is called nonetheless to pursue those qualifications of an elder, including teaching. Who else will be the next generation of elders of this church? Who else? will maybe join this elder board as their needs arise? Who will lead their families unless they are teaching? Again, we're training our men on Thursday nights to study the scripture, how to study the scripture, and then giving them opportunities to teach the scripture. They're studying it, they're learning it to do what? To teach the scripture. And this is the pattern for the whole church, not just for the men. It's the pattern for the whole church because older men are to be training and discipling our younger men and older women are to be discipling and training our younger women. Brothers and sisters, we have both. We have both. We have younger and older. And the Lord has been so kind to grow us multi-generationally for that very reason, for teaching, 
and leading and guiding one another. You say, well, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not, not really feel comfortable in teaching or, or whatnot, and that's fine. We don't really have a lot of opportunities in doing that. We're still small, and we don't have those particular needs. But guess what? Every time we gather, every time we get together, we're always teaching one another. We're always teaching one another. You're always teaching one another with your words, with your actions, with how you love, how we forgive, how we speak graciously and kindly and compassionately and with charity, how we correct in love, how we pray for one another, how we pray with one another, how we fellowship together, when we share a meal together and good drink together, how we share the gospel how we encourage one another in the gospel. How when we meet together to study and pray God's word. We are always teaching one another. We're called, all of us, to teach one another. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Set your hearts on the word of Christ. And let it dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing hymns and songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We're teaching each other in our singing. We're teaching one another when we're not singing, when we neglect that. We, we're, we're teaching one another in our thankfulness, in our gratitude, in our honoring of one another. We're teaching one another in everything and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? Thankfulness in our hearts to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That's awesome. Hebrews 10.24 And let us consider how to stir one another up one or another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day of drawing near. Ezra realized that those gifts and talents and things that he had were not for him. They were to be used and leveraged for the kingdom of God. And the same things for us. We study the word, we are obedient to the word, to encourage one another, to lead one another, to stir one another to love and good works. 1 Peter 2.9 says that if you're in Christ, this is what it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, what, proclaim his excellencies. That's not just my calling. This is every one of ours glorious calling together. My role may look different than yours, yeah. But praise God, we're all called to proclaim these excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Listen, that verse also tells you that you are more like Ezra than you may even realize. Ezra was a priest. Guess what? You're the priest too. You're calling into that, that royal priesthood. You have been grafted in a holy nation, a people of, of God's own possession. Your lineage has been discovered this morning, and it's in Christ. That's our lineage. And we proclaim under, with that authority of that God's word, the word of God before us. Listen to the words that Peter uses. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. You know what that means? You're part of the king's family. <laughs> My lineage is Roberts of nowhere, England, probably. My mom was born in Holland somewhere. I have no ties to any of those monarchs or anything like that. We've always been poor peasant nobodies, but not anymore. Neither are you. Kingly, priestly, a holy nation of God's own possession to proclaim his excellencies, to proclaim his excellencies, his excellencies together to one another and to this watching fallen world. Remember, what does the world need? More Ezra's. And here they are. What do you want to be known for in this life? Is it for fame? Is it to be liked or well-loved by others, to be respected? Is it to be wealthy and to enjoy all the comforts of the 21st century has to offer? Ezra set his heart to the three most important priorities or loves that a person can have. To study and know the Bible, to do the Bible, and to teach the Bible. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the power of the Word of God. Because it is how he brings life into a fallen world again and again. Do not underestimate the joy and the pleasures that comes from the great study of God's word, the deep study of God's word, and then to do it, to be obedient to God's word. Do not underestimate the joy and the pleasure of teaching one another to script the scriptures, to help a, a younger brother or a younger sister in the word of God to understand it and to know how to go to the well and draw the water, the living water, up again and again herself. Don't neglect that. Don't underestimate that. Those small moments you have to, to plug those encouragements into one another. And understand this, that is as, as good as an example that Ezra is to us and has been so far. As good as he could ever do for us, Jesus Christ personifies the word of God by which he was pursuing. I hope that this morning, beloved, that you have been encouraged and renewed in your resolve to know, to study, and to obey, and practice, and preach, and teach the Bible as, as the Lord God gives you opportunity and as it is appropriate. And may we as a church continue to love God's word 
leave a legacy of loving God's word and keeping and holding in its place of authority for the next generation. To love God's word, the knowledge of God's word, and the pursuit of its obedience for each of our lives. And that it would be shaping us every day in how we are to navigate the waters of this very fallen world. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder of the authority and the sufficiency of your word. Lord, thank you for these basic three applications to this, is to study your Bible, to do it, to be obedient to it, and to teach it. Would you help us, O God, by your Holy Spirit, who calls us and draws us to truth, to help us to set our hearts daily, daily, that we would turn to our, our daily bread, Christ, and we'd feast upon him, and we would pray and seek opportunities, Lord, to, to sow seeds of righteousness and truth in our brothers and sisters as we gather or when we don't gather over lunch, over coffee, over tea, text messages, phone calls. Lord, that is, it is by your word alone that makes us salty. It's what gives us taste. It's what shines brightly. Yes, the watching world may hate the bright light. They may hate the taste. But God, let us never waver. And you use this church, Lord, as a, as a bedrock of the truth of God's word throughout generations until Christ returns. For your glory and for our joy, we pray these things together. Amen.